Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we're taking off our shoes and walking to Bali and back. A lot of graduates are told these days, do what you love, do what you're passionate about. And I think it's really unfair to a lot of these people because most of them don't know. So I flip it on its head and my advice to them is whatever you're doing, be passionate about it. Be wholehearted about it. Go all in and just give it everything you've got. Don't second guess. Don't question. Just be passionate about that and good things will happen. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, you know, it's summertime, and this is a perfect moment to start to think about how you are going to try to disconnect. Maybe you're doing a little summer break. Maybe you're trying to recharge your batteries with a staycation. Well, if you want to do something a little more drastic, you're going to really like this interview. Our guest today is Ben Fetter. He has written a book called Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. It was sort of described to me as the corporate version of Eat, Pray, Love. And since I loved Eat, Pray, Love, I was immediately induced to say, get this guy on the show. So don't forget, if you want to come on the program uh, and you have got some feedback for us, you can always send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Here's our interview with Ben Fetter. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Ben Fetter, the author of Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. It's nice, so nice to be here. So we like to start the program with uh, just a general question. And I know I probably know the answer because um, I usually say to everybody who comes on the show, what is your best financial or career decision that you ever made? And I presume that leads me into this book. So what's your best career or money decision you've ever made? Well, the book it was not exactly the best money decision I ever made. It was probably the best life decision I ever made. I'll answer a slightly different question, okay. which is kind of, you know, how do I, what's the best way of going about doing things in business? Um, and I have found I've been most successful when I have not had to ask permission to do things. When I, I've never really applied for a job. I've never done anything where I've kind of really had to ask permission. I kind of feel like I always need to find a different strategy. So my first job I ever got um, was at the World Bank in Washington. I was interested in international affairs. And it was really hard to get that job. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who was there. I said, look, just get me past security uh-huh. and I'll take it from there. And so, you know, she got me past security. I went with my resident. And I literally knocked on doors and sort of say, you know, do you need an analyst? So and, so, and so the book actually starts with a very similar episode where kind of, you know, we, uh, my partners and I were interested in managing a large media company. And the book starts with basically, you know, what I'll call a non-hostile, hostile takeover. But essentially the same thing. We had to crowbar our way into a situation. And um, Wait, I want to go back for a second. So what did you do at the World Bank? I was an analyst. Mm-hmm. And how I, long were you there? I was there for two years. It was right after school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the point they said, look, you either, if you want a career at the World Bank, you need a PhD in economics. And I really wasn't interested in that. Mm-hmm. And then what did you do? And I went to business school. Mm-hmm. And then I went to work for Rupert Murdoch. Uh-huh. Um, how was that? Rupert, it was great. Rupert, News Corp is an amazing organization. How long um, were you there? Uh, I don't know. Uh, three years, four years, something like that. And then I'd always, when I left business school, I got two pieces of advice um, from two different business school professors that I tell everybody who asks me for advice, I repeat them when they're just starting out in their careers. One is, you know, the early years in, in your career are really important learning years and they form your habits. So the best thing that you can do is go to a place that will teach you good habits. So go to a place with ho- the highest standards mm. you can get and, uh, 
because uh, you can only go down from there. But if you start below, you can't. it's really hard to raise mm. your standards. So go to a place with really high standards. The other was, look, I know you want to be an entrepreneur because I did want to be an entrepreneur. And uh, he said, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, don't do it yet. This was before the age of the internet where like, right. you had to drop out of college to be an entrepreneur. Right. And so don't do it yet. Go make your mistakes off of somebody because you're going to make mistakes. Go right. make it off of somebody else's nickel. Talk a little bit about who you were, as you said, you sort of crowbarred your way into this firm. Tell us a little bit about where you found yourself and you thought this was going to be sort of a short term, I'm going to fix this thing and get out. So talk about that a little bit. Um, so we found a company that my partners and I found a company that was uh, really troubled. SEC investigation, FTC investigations, being threatened to being thrown off of NASDAQ and you know any number of things that had gone wrong with the company. We found ourselves in this um, shareholder meeting where we replaced the board, replaced the management. And I went in essentially as kind of an interim CEO for six months. And as these things go, you know, some six months, the board came to me and sort of said, you're doing a great job. Why don't you stay? And so six months turned into about four years. I love the job. Very exciting. The people there are terrifically talented. Um, uh, the products they produce are incredible, including Grand Theft Auto and um, Red Dead Redemption. But at the end of four years, you know, I, I was circling the globe, you know, multiple times a year. And I realized one day I walked in to my apartment and my eldest son, who was in eighth grade at the time, was barricaded inside his room um, doing his homework. And he was a very serious student. He was just like sequestered there on his own. And I just cracked the door open. I said, hey, Sam. And he just grunted something at me. And then at dinner, he kind of, you know, grunted some more. <laughs> And I had this moment of, you know, I'm circling the globe, and his youngest sister was about six years old at the time. And so from, if I'd been in that company four years, call it, so from the ages of three to seven, I'm circling the globe. My kid's going into high school, and I know what high school's like in New York. Mm -hmm. And from there to college, and then it's all over. And I had this moment, it's like, I'm running around doing my thing, he's doing his thing, and I'm going to miss this moment. And I had this this epiphany of like, this is where it happens. This is where husbands and fathers turn into the men they never intended to be. And like visitors you, into their children's lives every so often. Or, or every so often, but you know, it's not what, not what anybody kind of goes into a marriage right, or goes into fatherhood wanting, but right. you follow your ambition, you follow your career, and that's what happens. And I had a choice to make. Talk about what happened when you went to your wife, Victoria, and said, I have this epiphany. Well, the truth is, you know, she was going through her own thing, too, so she had her own little epiphany mm -hmm. um, and had come back from a weekend, a ladies' weekend, um, where one of the women had taken a sabbatical in Barcelona with her family. And Victoria just kind of peppered her the questions the entire weekend and came back home and sort of said, why don't we do it? Why don't we just go on a sabbatical? And I never, I thought that was for librarians and academics. I like, can't even consider it a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. um, and she and I had always talked about, hey, you know, when we were younger, maybe we just take some time off. The gear started moving. I was like, well, what would that take and how would that happen? When you were this person, you're on this ambitious career track, did you have this like nagging thing that said to you like, but if you take the time off, you're out of the game and then the world passes you by? I mean, that's that's a big voice that many entrepreneurs or CEOs or managers Everybody. have, right? Everybody has it, right? It's scary. So how did you manage that? What did you say to that voice? Um. You know, I was reading a book at the time. It was a little book. I always, <laughs> people find it funny. I always plug somebody else's book. And it's called Escape 101, How to Go on Sabbatical Without Losing Your Money or Your Mind. Mm -hmm. And they talk about that voice. Like, what do you say to that voice when that voice hits Shut you? Shut up. <laughs> well, you say is, uh, you remind yourself, which is true, that nobody who's gone on a sabbatical regrets it. Um, That's interesting. And, 
and it's just a gift to yourself and to your family. And I just kind of realized, my, I had an executive coach who kind of gave me that old saying, are you working to live or are you living to work? Mm-hmm. So A, it takes a little bit of confidence to know life will be okay. Right. Um, and B, you know, the flip side of fear is courage, and you need to have a little courage. There was this bit in the book that I highlighted. You were, you were having conversations with different professionals. You said, what surprised me most was not, not what these people said, but the number of them who said it, that so many of them did not have their whole hearts in their work, the very place they spent the bulk of their waking hours and adult years. They were not leading their lives as fully as they wanted. Did you feel that way, that you weren't leading your life as fully as you wanted? Look, I was leading a very full life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are many times in my job where I kind of looked at myself and I said, I, I get to do this. How incredible. I mean, the, the, it was an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I was paying the price of my family. And so I, my work life, I was absolutely living to the fullest. Mm. It's my family life that was beginning to, I wouldn't say fray at the edges, but I was concerned that it would. And I was, you know, not knowing my kids and all of that stuff. So, you know, the truth of the matter is I was highly engaged in my work. Okay. So you you and your wife have this conversation. You finally get there. And now you're going to try to figure out the where. So talk about how you made that decision. So we, we ended up in Bali, but Bali was not our first choice. So, you know, we kind of sat down in front of Google Earth and our computer in the kitchen and we were watching the spinning globe and said, oh, you know, all right, where do you want to go? So we kind of looked at different places on the globe and zoomed down and zoomed in and spun. And I was like, okay, this is a terrible way to do this. Right. And, um, you know, we're business people, so we just sort of, okay, what are our goals? What do we want to accomplish? And, you know, what are the options that map against that? So that's, you know, we did that exercise, and what came out was a place in South America. And so we decided to take a little recon trip there um, in the summer before we went just to find our school for our kids and figure mm-hmm. out what it was like. And at the end of that, I said to my wife, Victoria, I was like, you know, I've had a wonderful weekend, but uh, I can't do this. <laughs> it's and what, not happening. And what was, the, what, was the, the, what was it about the place? It was, you know, I found it uninteresting. I felt it was, A, it was, I felt it was like suburbia in Spanish. Uh-huh. Um, and B, I had all these fantasies about what it would be like. It was uh, Mendoza, Argentina, which uh-huh. is kind of the wine district. And I thought, ooh, it'll be Napa and South America. It's Napa. not anything like Napa. Bali, though. So that's I just kind like, of out there. So my wife's kind of drumming her fingers. It's like, we're leaving in two months. It's like, you know, all right, where are we going? And I spoke to, my brother had been there, and I spoke to an artist that I knew who lived there. And he's and he just like, I could hear in the phone, I could hear almost the tears in his eyes about you know, how wonderful a place it was. This was also the place where Eat, Pray, Love, where she ends up at the end, right? It is. It is. So this is like Eat, Pray, Love. For men. For, for men, <laughs> for, for media mogul men, um, you know, like well, that kind for, of- for, that, any, for any hard-charging executive. Yeah, exactly. And, well, I shouldn't say that. So let's get into Bali for a second. So what was it like when you first got there? First of all, I just feel like very bad place for someone like me because very humid Bad hair days, basically, on end. Right. What else would I find about that? But, but you wouldn't care. I wouldn't care. I, t- I don't <laughs> right. care now. Right. Um, I'd be wearing that ponytail all day long. What What did you find enchanting about Bali? So, you know, one of the, one of my little transformations was I became a lot more spiritual while I was there. And somebody said to me something, which I didn't quite believe, but I'm beginning to believe that there are certain places on earth that are just spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bali's one of them. Bali's got one of the uh, last intact remaining um, indigenous cultures that are really unpolluted by uh, Western culture. It's a little mm-hmm. small island in, in Indonesia. Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country, but this little small island is an island of Hinduism and its own, its own little brand of Hinduism. And it's very kind of, it's very primordial. It's very kind of old mm. um, and ancient and um, and yet very inviting of Westerners to participate. So I found it truly fascinating and spiritual and uh, Did you beautiful. grow up with religion in your life? I did. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Wow. I did. 
so were you the kind of Orthodox but I've Jew? Since, but I've since become a Jubu. I've become a Buddhist. I was just going to say, you're kind of the Jewish guy who's like, yeah, I get the spirituality. I just need a different flavor of this. Right. So you, you well, understand. Well, it's, it's more state of mind than anything else. Right? Right. When you go there, how do you... How do you tap into that spirituality? Like, what happened? I know you talked about yoga, which you basically described as like a girly thing. Well, look, I, <laughs> I used to lift weights. I used to, you know, I used to, you know, it was cardio. I was kind of like I was doing what any hard charging executive you imagine would do. Right. right? Look, when I went there, I, tend to, I said to my wife, "Like, what am I going to do over there? I'm so used to all this stimulation coming at me from mm-hmm. all directions, and I had no idea what I was going to do." And she goes, "You know, you'll be bored. It'll be okay. You'll just be bored." I wasn't bored at all. I was curious about meditation. I'd read a, a book about meditation. I thought that was fascinating. I'd read another book about brain plasticity and how we can change mm-hmm. who we are by changing our thoughts. I started getting into meditation and into yoga and into all sorts of things that I just really about being centered and grounded. And, um, you know, spirit, spirituality is kind of a big word. And I don't. I think it has nothing to do with religion, honestly. And if mm-hmm. you boil it down, I just think spirituality is love. Love for yourself, love for others, love for compassion for... Um, people, animals, whatever, but I'm not at all interested in what I'd call like the the church of Buddhism. I'm interested in the philosophy of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. How did your um, kids adapt? I mean, because you, and it was a finite period of time. So you went in and said, this is going to be a six month thing. We're going to have our kids in this school. It sounds like you found a very cool school that was really interesting. So you have this eighth grade grunting boy. What was his reaction upon learning about this game plan? (laughs) <laughs> so we we told our kids one at a time, and we took uh, Sam out to lunch at a local diner, and uh, you know we kind of dropped it on him slowly, but eventually he kind of like you know he was listening, and then he said like wait what what did you say? <laughs> and we kind of repeated it, and then he just sort of fell silent, and he didn't speak again for two days. Oh my god! And he just sort of I need to leave, and he just walked out. Get out! <laughs> and he just kind of he didn't speak, and then eventually Victoria said to him, he's like I spoke to your guidance counselor. This is not going to hurt your chances at all for getting into college. Right, because that's the only thing he's thinking about, i That was the only thing he was thinking about. I think he eventually came to realize, like, wait, there's no downside to this, and I get away, and I get a little vacation. And And I know what my college essay is going to be. So I don't. Th- I don't think he was as sophisticated. It, it turned out to have been his college essay. I don't <laughs> think he course. knew about it then. <laughs> when he got in, his admissions officer sort of wrote on the form letter. You know, there's a form letter, but yeah. a little note on the bottom goes, "I really enjoyed reading about your time in Bali." Oh, that's cool. I said cool. to him, "I was like, you're welcome. You win. I, I did that. You for win. You. That that's for you. excellent." So talk about. So he gets there, and the school is an international-based student body. The school has got its own story, which is kind of extraordinary. It was founded by a guy named John Hardy, who many of your listeners might know is kind of this uh, jewelry brand. Mm-hmm. But John was um, a kid growing up in Ontario with dyslexia. And in that day, if you were dyslexic, you were like the village idiot. Mm-hmm. And he had a terrible childhood and a terrible educational uh, background. So as soon as he can, he escapes and moves to Bali, sells jewelry to tourists on the beach. Fast forward 30 years, he's the largest employer in Bali. He's like, he sells his company for gobs of money to a private equity firm. And what he decides to do with his money is build the school in part to fix his, you know, his past, but also because his legacy, he wants to leave this legacy and he wants to teach children about the environment. So it's a school that's got its bespoke curriculum all around um, the environment. It teaches sciences and all that stuff, but it's got, it's all around environmental themes. And that year the theme was water. Hmm. And because he's so creative, he builds a school all out of renewable materials. It's all bamboo. And, and it's all like, it's cathedrals of bamboo in the middle of the jungle. It's the most gorgeous place. Hmm. It was just so much joy in the kids' faces and so much love of learning. So, and you juxtapose that with kind of what you see in New York about like, you know, 
test, 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 and get into college and all of that stuff. And this was just like chill, guys. Just, just, just enjoy it. And was this a K through twelve school? K through twelve. So your son must get there, and he's like, Mister, I've got to like work hard, do well. And what do you see? How do you see him change as a result of this experience? I'd say probably he changed the most, maybe because of his age, but also because of who he was. So he was, you know, when he gets. He's going to kill me for talking about all this on radio. That's all right. Don't worry. Don't play it for him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I I would say, to just be general about it, I think he came out of his shell um, in a way that um, really gratified me. I saw him come out of his shell in terms of just sense of humor came out. He was much more outgoing. But he also had this political awakening in terms of environmentalism. Hmm. And, you know, when you're here, it's very easy to get tunneled. And all of a sudden, they they opened um, a window to the world to him both with respect to the curriculum as well as with who he was exposed to because there are kids from all over the world that show up to the school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was eye-opening for him. And to this day, many years later, um, he has a very strong environmental um, ethos. He has not drunk water out of, a, out of a plastic bottle since we returned to Bali because he understands kind of the pollution that that creates. And there's no, there are no plastic bags in our family. It's verboten. And so, you know, we live in a way that um, continues from that education. And he's, uh, the whole family's been utter- utterly changed. So the other three, tell me about what the way that they experienced this. So the young, I, I thought Sam, my oldest, would have the easiest time, the, the, sorry, the hardest time, ultimately. And my youngest would have the easiest time. And it was the opposite. She was seven at the time. Mm. And she ended up missing her, her teachers and her classmates oh. more than anybody else. Sam was like, you know, four, you know, one of four boys in a class of, 20 kids or something, so he was happy as a clam. And, uh, you know, they all changed in their own ways. I thought um, my daughter was really bullied in school here and had a really tough time in school. And one of the things she was curious about was whether girls were mean like that everywhere in the world or just in her school. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say they were mean. I mean, I kind of, I, I, I feel for those girls in her class also because they probably didn't know they were bullying. They were just being girls. She was in a, she was in a tough place. She was in a really tough place. And she blossomed. She That's totally great. blossomed. How nice. Yeah. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Ben Fetter in just a minute. But before we do that, and before you take off to Bali and find your way back, you may want to get your financial life in order. And if you want to do that, it might be time for you to figure out a turnkey way to manage some of your money. Enter Betterment, our sponsor. Betterment is designed to help customers build wealth, plan for retirement, and achieve financial goals. They take complex investing strategies. They use technology to make those strategies more efficient. They also do that by providing access to unlimited, personalized advice from licensed experts. You want to know whether you're on track to get to Bali and back? Well, you may want to go to Betterment. When you need it, their tools and guidance can help you get there, reach your goals, whatever they are. So here's what you need to know. Better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed free from Betterment. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Ben Fetter. Okay, you come back after this experience. You are changed. And did you come back to the same job? Like where you take a sabbatical and you leave, but you come back. Now talk about the reentry and what that was like. You know, the reentry was, it's hard, right? I can imagine the first time you live in Bali for that long and traveling to South Asia and you come back and the first time you hit Midtown, you know, it felt like this tourist, like, wow, look at those tall buildings. Mm. Whoa. In general, my work now is really trying to synthesize 
what I learned in Bali in terms of, um, you know, kind of being mindful and spiritual and all that stuff, while at the same time being engaged in my work and competing in the world. I don't think I could ever go back to who I was, but at the same time, I don't think I could be kind of this, you know, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say who I was. I don't want to label it, but, you know, the kind of person I was while on sabbatical because mm-hmm. I'm not on sabbatical. I'm right. But I do want to retain those stuff. So I've retained certain practices that I picked up in in, uh, in Bali that guide me and center me and um, allow me to live a very full life. And I I move in the world in a much different way. I think my edges come off. And paradoxically, I think I'm more effective and able to achieve more. So what are you doing now? Work-wise, I run partnerships for large Chinese. There are two, ba- two giant Chinese internet companies. One is Alibaba that mm-hmm. everybody knows. Um, the other is Tencent, mm-hmm. um, and I work for Tencent. I'm their U.S. guy for their video game business. When you went back, and uh, I'll just cut to the chase because I found this fascinating, that you sort of came back in, and it sounds like you sort of got pushed out from the previous position. So, yeah, right. So I came back. You know, when we took over the company, it was part of a, a firm, a private equity firm. And then when I came back, I came, went back not to the company but to the private equity firm. Right. And it had been five years since I had been there. And by the time I got there, and I was like, it, it took about a year for everybody to realize my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't into it. They weren't into it. Mm-hmm. And so we we kind of um, came up with a plan. And I became uh, vice chairman, non-executive role, with an ability to do my own thing, which is what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And I was happy doing that until I got a call one day from Tencent. And I thought, well, this is cool. How is it that when, you know, you're working today, something comes flying in your face? Talk about what... You mean that phone call that just ruins your entire day? Yes. That one. Maybe that one. Or that email where I sometimes get, like, the email and my heart starts racing and Mm. I have a whole, like, interior dialogue about what I'm about to say. Yeah. And then I hopefully take a breath and don't say say it. What do you do? I try to breathe and not say it because sometimes I'll say it here in the studio and Mark will capture me on tape. He'll edit it and he'll send me an audio clip of my me saying something horrible, <laughs> which is like he makes me a better human being by reminding me not to do that. So right, uh, right. so it has many F-bombs usually and various languages. Right. So what do you do? You know, even before I went to Bali, I had this rule about that, which I'd call my 24-hour rule, which is don't respond, yeah. don't react, give it 24 hours. Even And, and that 24-hour pl- applies to situations where like I'm totally screwed I don't I have no answer for how to get out of the situation um, and just by giving it 24 hours and letting it percolate solutions begin to emerge mm-hmm. so give it a little bit of time and so I, I kind of do what you do a little bit which is like I give it some time and breathe through it but I find since I started meditating a while ago I have this kind of like matrix move where I kind of feel like I just slow it all down and just you know dodge the bullets a little bit and sort of observe mm-hmm. and um, so that I can respond instead of react. And it comes naturally now after kind of years of meditation. I just kind of do that. It's not to say that I don't get those feelings every now and then. Mm-hmm. I'm human like everybody else. But on the margins, I I have a much different approach to all of that, right? And I don't, ex- I don't take it as personally. Right. I mean, forget the emotional part of it, but cognitively, it's good to know that we are all pre-wired for that kind of um, fight-flight, thing or um, anxiety or whatever, or negative bias. Mm-hmm. This is just the way the human brain works. And just that knowledge to know it's like, oh, there it goes again. Right. Like to sort of say, there it goes again. Right. Recognize it for what it is, because it's not reality, right? It's just this this creation of your mind, and which is the result of, your brain's a result of billions of, millions of years of evolution. You know, just recognize that for a second. It's like, okay, this is not real. Okay, so I had a Zen moment this morning. I'm going to share with you. Great. I come out of my building, 
it's whatever, 5.30 in the morning. I'm walking my two dogs. They're very cute, very happy. Everything's fine. Been up already since 4. And I'm walking along, and it's raining a little bit, so I walk under the building next to me, which has scaffolding. And I'm walking there, and a woman comes out of her building with her dog. And my dog just picks her head up and goes, you know, barks a little bit, just like, rub up, like, hey, hey, what's that? There's something just came into my sight line. At which point, this woman's dog lunges towards me and towards the dogs. But I didn't think, I didn't feel unsafe. The dog comes out of his collar, and the woman is freaked. She's completely freaked. And she's like, God damn it. You know, and she gets the, and then she looks at me straight in the eye and she goes, You know, you could tell your dog to stop barking. It actually works. Okay, it's 5 30 <laughs> in the morning. Okay. So I would say the non Zen Jill response had many things flash through my head. Right. Then I really did think to myself, It's 5 30 in the morning. Am I going to let this surly lady? get me down. I said nothing. And there was nothing for her to do. Right. And it was fascinating because, of course, I told this story about 500 times this morning here in the broadcast center. And all of my friends have been sending me texts about all the things I could have said right. to her. I'm um, like, oh, my some dog- of them were funny. Yeah. Oh, my dog only barks. It's surly women. You know, something <laughs> right. like that. Um, but saying nothing, it actually was freeing. And I'm sure that in that moment, this had nothing to do with me. And not taking it personally and not like fighting back against it. It actually was quite freeing. Ben Fetter, thank you so much for joining us. We started and I asked you your best financial or career decision. What's your worst? What's the worst one that pops to your mind? You know, I really, you know, ap- apropos of being kind of Zen and Buddhist mm-hmm. and also, I really try not to dwell on those things. <laughs> so I don't, I can't But I like, I, I do like the idea that like the, the advice you give, something. A tip to avoid being seen oh, as? I, I have one. I don't know about being seen as, but a lot of graduates are told these days, do what you love, do what you're passionate about. And I think it's really unfair to a lot of these people because most of them don't know. Right. So I flip it on its head and my advice to them is whatever you're doing, be passionate about it. Be wholehearted about it. Go all in and just give it everything you've got. Don't second guess. Don't question. Just be passionate about that and good things will happen. Very good. Ben Fetter, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. All right, another great interview, but now on to you. It's time for the listener question of the week. Remember, to get on the air with us, all you have to do is send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, we're talking to Michelle. She's from the Garden State, New Jersey. Michelle, welcome to the program. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Um, my husband and I have had some big changes this year. Um, we've both been IT, in IT for a long time. And I recently, um, after being inspired by your podcast and some other ones, I left my career to be a financial planner. What? And that is so yeah. cool. Congratulations. Yeah, Good for you. Thank you. That's I awesome. Started. All right, great. Um, so right now I'm study, study, study. But the, um, my husband also, too, is getting a new job And so now we're kind of, we've always had the same benefits packages. We were fortunate enough to start investing in our 401ks and we were pretty young, about 22 and 23. And so we've got a a sizable amount in our traditional 401ks. And now at our new companies, we have the options of doing Roth 401ks. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out which one should I do based on taxes? Um, 
we, we've got a pretty decent amount in there now, and I did two backdoor Roths in the past two years. So I'm just kind of trying to figure out, do we do Roth 401ks or traditional 401ks? Our income right now, we're really lucky, is pretty high, and we don't have kids. Okay, what's the, what, so what's the income currently, right, this, like for this year, let's say 2018? Uh, it should be around 300 Okay. 000. So, I mean, you're in the 24% tax bracket, married filing jointly. That's your top bracket. So um, for everyone listening, that's a big wide range, by the way. The 24% goes from married filing jointly, 165000 up to 315000 It's a pretty reasonable amount of tax to pay on a pretty high level of income. So I am inclined to think and I've said this many times on the show, but I'm going to say it again. I just think that we are all far better off trying to pay taxes at these rates, lock in what we know our tax liability is in the future when it comes to retirement, and then you don't really have to worry about going forward. So I think that for most people, you're thinking, oh, is my income going to go up or down? Or this? I just suspect that this is going to end up being a pretty good tax arbitrage for you. How much money do you have already in retirement accounts, in qualified retirement accounts, non-Roth? Uh, in the regular foreign case, we have around 900000 Yeah. Okay. So that money's going to have to come out. And that's going to create... You know, ta- right, try right? to convert that? I, I think what might be better and might be easier for you is to just use Roth 401ks going forward how much is in your Roth right now through the back door? Oh, not much. Only um, it's only been two years, so okay. about maybe maybe thirteen thousand. Do you have cash that's set aside that's not emergency reserve fund? What is that amount? Well, my husband, who I uh, jokingly refer to as Scrooge McDuck, loves to have a big emergency fund. So we've got about a year and a half of living expenses. Mm-hmm. Won't let me do anything with. Okay. And then we've got, I'd say, we're helping to fund our nieces and nephews' college. So we've got some money put away for that. So other than that cash, we don't have a ton of extra cash. So I think if you don't, if, if you said to me, eh, my husband's Scrooge McDuck and he's got a million dollars <laughs> squirreled away in a bank account, that's when I would say do it. But you know, if you don't have the cash, on hand to pay the tax that would be due, I wouldn't do it. Why put the pressure on yourself, right? Well, yeah, I was thinking we would save up for it. Yeah, I mean, you can, but like, don't go crazy. I mean, you really do a combo. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to worry about that. You'll run the numbers when you get your CFP. No, you're going to just get your nice, beautiful calculator. You're going to run these numbers and you'll see (laughs) what I mean, which is having money that's already been taxed at this rate is going to be something quite valuable to you. I think you both put in money into your start a brandy new Roth 401k. You go you're, you're both maxing out, I presume. And I think that that's how you start. So you have all this money in old retirement accounts. What's the game plan? Are you going to roll them into IRA rollovers or are you going to roll them into your new company plan? I had to, um, with my new company that I started with, I have to have my assets in that company. I I Uh have them. um, My IRAs are in Vanguard and my old company 401k is with Fidelity. So I'm going to roll, I'm rolling them into mine Mm because I had to. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my husband, I haven't gotten all of his benefits. But it's a pretty it's a pretty good company, so I'm assuming they have decent options. We'll probably roll his into his 401k. As an employee of a FINRA 
firm, uh, mm-hmm. does that mean that you get low-cost options in the 401k? Have you checked out the prices of the, the I annual? Did. They, yeah. seem, they seem pretty decent. Um, it looks like the profit-sharing plan is a little bit better than the traditional, what they have for 401k. I wasn't amazed by it, mm-hmm. but... Um, it was it was decent enough. Okay, so you know, just pick the lowest cost options when possible. If there are some index funds in there, use those. Mm-hmm. I think you're in great shape. Uh, I want you to stay in touch with us, Michelle, because I am just so very happy that you're in entering the profession. We need more smart, wonderful women like you entering. We'll take your husband also if you wanted it. Mm-hmm. I want more women to enter the world of financial planning right now. You know, we are obviously would like it to be 50-50, but only about, I think it's only 23% of certified financial planners are women. So thank you for helping us increase the numbers. And if you need help with your coursework, Mark is also, he's a little bit ahead of you. I heard. He told so, me. He's, he's got the books. studying so, like mad. Yeah. Yes, I actually, I've, I've already looked into a program. I'm, I'm going to give my job about a year to 18 months, and then I'm going to enroll in it. All right, good. So, so, go back to school after this. That's, I want to kind of get my feet wet a little bit first. That sounds great. And and, and Mark, you'll be happy to talk to her. He wants you. He wants you to take his books. That's what he said. He's going to just. He'll. He'll. He'll give you that. Well, I appreciate that. Good luck. Let us know if we need to help you with any present value, future value calculations. You'll see what that's all about. It's a lot of fun. I can't wait. All right. Take care. Good luck. Thanks for Thanks calling. So much. She'll love the show. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to Ben Fetter for showing up. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air live with us, don't forget to send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever. You can also go to our website, JillOnMoney.com. While you're there, you might want to sign up for our free newsletter. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is executive producer extraordinaire. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.